Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and today I'm joined by John Tarwater. Uh, John, this past week we learned a little bit more about you as you shared from Matthew's Gospel in chapter 10. And John, you were very transparent this past Sunday. You shared some of your experiences as a, as a budding missionary, and I'm sure many appreciated your sharing your story of a call to foreign missions over 25 years ago. I know I did. Thank you very much. It was a kind of an emotional time for me to reflect back on those periods. It's amazing now, some distance between when they occurred versus where we are now and the vividness with which I could see where people were and those experiences just seemed as real today as they did back then. Well, it's obvious. Uh, you know, We were talking just a little bit earlier, John, before we went on the microphone. You, the emotions that you showed there were, I know they came from deep down, and sometimes we don't even realize how God is going to use those emotions later on, 25 or so years later, I'm guessing 25 to 30 years later for you, uh, just to bless people. And uh, something that's touched you so deeply can touch people 30 years later. Well, hopefully he can still use it in there people who were blessed yesterday well, or Sunday. I, I know I was. So, well, John, uh, let's start here as we're looking here at Matthew 10. Let's start with some Bible vocabulary. Uh, you did point out, and you, you gave us some definitions. I want to go a little deeper, but you pointed out earlier, early in your message on Sunday that Matthew introduces Jesus' chosen 12 as disciples in verse 1, but then in verse 2, he identifies them as apostles. Now, these are two words we still hear today. They're very much used today. Help us define those two words and help us to understand their significance in the New Testament church and maybe some things even today as we hear about apostolic churches or that type of thing that we just need to need to understand so we can have a, a right understanding of God's progression of leadership. In the book of Matthew, the disciple is actually the more important term. Uh, he's calling us to be his disciples. In Matthew 28, we're to go and make disciples. And a disciple, it can carry a specific uh, meaning when we talk about the 12, or it can be used more generally in terms of just any old disciple. A disciple, by just broad definition, is one who is a learner, one who is a follower, uh, one who is a student. So when Jesus goes to, on the mountain to speak, there are many disciples. There's many who are there to learn. Uh, but later in his ministry, he's more identifying with those 12 who have been with him all along. An apostle uh, carries the connotation of one who is sent in its noun form. It's the one sent. It's the verb. It's the sending of the one. But we normally uh, tag onto it that the apostle is one who is sent with the authority of the sender. Mm -hmm. And so I gave the example in uh, the message of Jesus who the author of Hebrews identifies as an apostle. He was one who was sent by the Father with the authority of the Father. Or we can talk about uh, Barnabas and Paul. Mm -hmm. They were sent out by the church of Antioch. Uh, so they had the authority of the church of Antioch, if you will. Although later, Paul makes clear, hey, <laughs> I'm an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. <laughs> and so he's trying to okay. say something about his authority there. And then later, when we start talking about the church today, we carry on perhaps part of that apostolic authority. 
And that really comes from Matthew 16, where right. the keys of the kingdom, the authority, were granted to the church. The church is the one that carries that apostolic authority. Okay. So uh, if I can take that then a step further, we also have in our in our midst churches that are that we call apostolic churches. Now, there are there's a, a Catholic rendering of that, the Catholic Church, which which would be what we would consider an apostolic church, I believe. And then we also have more of a what we might call Protestant form of that in the apostolic and apostolic church. Can you talk a little bit about that and some of the ways we might diverge from those? Yeah, there's a denomination called apostolic, so we can use it in a small a apostolic that any old church that continues the teaching or the doctrine of the apostles is an apostolic church. If it's apostolic with a capital A, talking like a Baptist church, Methodist church, Presbyterian church, apostolic, that carries a little bit different connotation, or I might say uh, a rather bigger connotation. Okay. (laughs) Uh, In that sense, um, coming out of the early 20th century, 1905, 1907, there was what's called the Azusa Street uh, Revival, and so it was kind of California. the beginnings of, that's right, the beginning of the Pentecostal movement. And part of that movement uh, in the, uh, became known as the Apostolic Church. So it's a Pentecostal church, but it would differ, say, from the Church of God or the Assemblies of God in that it's what we call the Jesus-only movement. Mm. So an Apostolic Church, so if it's a Pentecostal church that is Jesus-only, we can, uh, it could be classified in one of those denominations we call apostolic. Now, they use the term to say, hey, we're like the apostles, uh, just as the apostles in Acts chapter 2, they experienced the power of Pentecost. Okay. They baptized, as it says in Acts 2.36, 2.37, in Jesus' name for the remission of sins. So they're going to have a baptismal regeneration. They're going to baptize in Jesus' name rather than the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which is more traditional for most uh, Protestant churches. And so in my mind, they leave part of the apostolic teaching. Uh, I would consider them unorthodox in that manner because of the way they approach salvation and in the way that they approach uh, the issue of the gift of tongues as being normative for the believer okay. rather than a gift. Okay, very good. And then the Catholic Church would be more of a strict apostolic, as we see here in Scripture, focusing on chapter 16, where Peter, they, they would say Peter <laughs> is given the keys, and then that yeah. is passed down. To the Pope. To the, yeah. Exactly. So they would so say the that Peter was line. our first Pope, right. and then the apostolic succession yeah. goes to the other Popes. Right. Uh, Protestants have taken the keys to be to the, the Church, and the apostolic succession goes in with the churches who have that authority. Right. So, well, it, I tell you what, it is our goal here on the podcast not to get too ethereal, but I thought that was just an interesting uh, discussion of, of vocabulary and understanding how these affect us today. So, so John, we read this passage, and particularly Jesus' instructions about what the disciples are to say and to do as they go out. And it seems to me, I'm reading this last night, it seems to me almost absurd that Jesus would send them out into Judea with no more preparation than they had. I mean, you know, now we don't know all that went on before. We know he did a lot more miracles, a lot more teaching than is recorded here in Matthew. And of course, John says, you know, if we were to say all that he did, even the world wouldn't hold all the books. But, uh, you know, these people had witnessed, these men had witnessed Jesus perform miracles. They had heard Jesus teach. And, and we know that there was more there. But the message that Jesus called them to share was no more than the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, we read that in verse 7. Are there some lessons here for 21st century evangelism in as much as 
we focus, I mean, we, boy, we educate, we educate, we educate in our circles. Do sometimes we make it too hard? Yeah, I think many contemporary Christians, they try to make it more difficult than it really is. Or they may imagine that evangelism is kind of like a marketing scheme. If we learn a certain technique or a program, we can then somehow get people to follow Christ or join a church. And Jesus' teaching here reminds us that evangelism is centrally about God, his decision to work in an individual's life, his decision to draw people to himself. It's this message that God loves us, God pursues us, and God redeems us that should be the heart of evangelism. And, and for me, for a man who is involved in the, the marketplace, so to speak, every day, and I'm dealing with a lot of non-believers, it just strikes me, the core of what I present to somebody who I'm working with or somebody that I just, I, hopefully I'm focusing every, the gospel on every relationship I have, but it probably is just as simple as, you know, God loves you. Uh, to go back you know, the four spiritual laws, God loves you and has a wonderful plan. <laughs> he does, and it can be that simple. Yeah, I think the more schooling I've received, the more simple my <laughs> uh, gospel presentation yeah, has become. Yeah, and that's um, uh, that's instructive to all of us, I think. That's great. Well, we get to verse 16, and it seems like at that point Jesus' focus seems to change from the immediate, what's going to happen to the disciples or what they should be doing, to the more distant future. And we there get a preview of what we're going to see throughout much of the rest of Matthew. Jesus is opposing the religious leaders. He's beginning to sense their or feel their wrath, and of course that culminates in the uh, the crucifixion. But then also beginning in Acts 4, following the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, anyone who still saw Jesus' role at the time as one of conquering king had to be scratching their head at this point. Yeah, I, I, I thought that was an interesting question. I think this will be part of the message uh, that we'll get next week or this week coming up in chapter 11. Through the first 10 chapters, the reader is constantly exposed to the teaching that Jesus is this long-awaited king. And we read of the miraculous birth narratives. We read of him defeating Satan in the wilderness. We have the miraculous stories of him in chapters 8 and 9. And all of these to point to him as a kind of king who will not disappoint, to use a phrase from Trent uh, in the first couple of messages. Mm. However, from this point forward, there'll be a considerable opposition to who Christ is, as well as to his followers, which he was warning us about in chapter 10. So what we're beginning to see is not that these previous pictures of Jesus were wrong, but rather it is that their understanding of the timing of it is incorrect. Mm -hmm. It's true that he may not be coming to be a political king, like perhaps some of them had in their mind, but he will be king. And the matter in which they are imagining it or when they assume it will take place I think was incorrect and, and beginning to change. And we're going to see that in John's mind uh, coming up in chapter 11 as well. But the message is still true from chapter 10 that in the end, the righteous judge, the righteous king will in fact be on his throne and he will be reigning. Yeah. And, and we've got to be careful not to be so hard on these people, these contemporaries of Jesus who did get some of the details wrong, some of the calendar wrong. <laughs> I think we tend to get really, really down on the scribes and Pharisees for that in particular, when in fact, uh, you know, we probably would have been the same place. Well, not we only, very likely will be. Not only would we have been, I think many of us are today, yeah. so that when something... Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> you know, come on. <laughs> you know, we're, we're praying, you know, an, uh, somebody has said something harsh against us or right. maybe... An, 
uh, something at work is not going well. Society seems to be attacking us, and we're expecting God uh, to do something about it now. And he may, because he is king, sure. even today. And he, so he may break into history and do something, but he may not also. But that doesn't mean, one, God doesn't exist, nor that he won't take care of it in the end, and we certainly believe he will. Well, you said just a few minutes ago, the more education you get, the more you learn, the simpler your gospel your idea of understanding of the gospel becomes would you I think you'd probably be with me as well the older you get the more you learn the more you realize you don't know let's talk <laughs> for just a minute about the ideas uh, that we the doctrinal understanding that we have uh, this is a tension that every believer is in uh, what are the essentials and what are some things that I can be a little more, uh, even as I'm working with maybe different believers from different areas? You've been a missionary, so no doubt you've uh, formed alliances, ministry alliances with people in Guatemala where you were on the field, you and uh, your wife and family. But you, we as a church here may not have those same kind of alliances. Uh, would that be a true statement? Uh, it yeah. would be uh, to some degree. Yeah. Uh, the phrase that we often used on the mission field is that we were looking for great commission Christians. Mm -hmm. So if I were sent out by Baptist organization, I didn't have to necessarily work with Baptist. Um, our mission agency was more uh, from the uh, um, uh, Bible church background, mm -hmm. so more of a Dallas Theological Seminary type of uh, upbringing or Moody, Baptist, Moody Bible Institute or something like that. And so you might have people who are, sometimes they're Baptist, sometimes they may come from a more Reformed Presbyterian background, but we felt as if they uh, held to what we called a Great Commission Christian background, the apostolic teaching that there's one God, there's salvation in no other name, it must be through Jesus Christ right. alone, uh, that we could probably work with them. And we may disagree on perhaps how they baptize, though we certainly sure. <laughs> believe that's important. If Bible teaches it, it's important. Uh, they might have a different perspective on um, women in ministry or something like that. But if they held to the essentials of the gospel, mm -hmm. then we felt we could work with them on the field. Yeah. And, it, and it reminds me of the need to uh, not be haughty, kind of be humble in our doctrinal uh, certainty. And... Uh, not that we want to hold our doctrines loosely. This is me talking here. I'm still formulating uh, even uh, 35 years down the road from salvation. But holding things humbly, not necessarily loosely, but humbly realizing that I still have a lot to learn. My knowledge is finite, and I'm continuing to pray that God will enlighten me as to the truth of any part of his word. On by all means, and, and hopefully I treat people as gently in their supposed heirs as the Lord treats me in my real heirs. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and I, we all have those. So, so, John, there are Christians who appear to have been faithful throughout their lives, living and testifying to all people's need for salvation that, that comes only through Jesus. And we all, you know, you talk about the necessary doctrines. Those are, that's one that we just hold firm. There is salvation in no other name other than Jesus's. And that's whether the work has been in foreign missions or in a faithful local ministry. But their circumstances, may I say my circumstances, don't seem to be marked by the kind of opposition that Jesus is referencing here. What Jesus is saying here in verses 16 on through the end of the chapter, 
should we infer anything when we see a lack of persecution in a believer's life? That's a good question. I seriously believe that. Certainly there are Christians today who've not faced some of the intense opposition that the first apostles experienced. Almost every one of them died a martyr's death. And that's that's opposition. I'd say it's pretty heavy. <laughs> However, there should be some pushback to the gospel message from any level. I say that because Scripture makes it clear that the gospel message is, quote, scandalous, end quote, if I can put that there. Mm-hmm. It's a stumbling block. And to the degree that one experiences this scandalous nature determines how hard one will push back. For some, the absolute claims that there's salvation in no other name is enough to cause them to push back with, some degree of ferocity. For others, they are scared and sense uneasiness when the gospel challenges their world. Their family members are responding to it or something like that. Mm -hmm. So I spoke about when we were in Guatemala. Uh, We didn't get much pushback at first when we were seeking to plant a church or we're going into a community and doing a, a Bible study. When you weren't causing too big of a problem. That's exactly right. But once the Bible study began to take root in people's life, and they started responding to this evangelical ministry, we received intense pushback. And that's when you start saying, well, maybe we're not going to renew visas, or maybe uh, we're going to ask you to leave our country, or maybe it becomes uh, something of a more physical nature. Right. And so how that opposition carries out, I think, degree to some degree, depends on how one hears your message. And does it attack their worldview? What do you mean that mm-hmm. I might be wrong? Hmm. <laughs> Uh, what do you mean that I may not be saved or something like that? And then that pushback can be rather uh, ferocious. Well, and, and so prevalent in our society, we go back to chapter 7, I believe, where uh, talking about the very early part of that chapter, you know, do not judge. And some people want to take that and say, see, it says you shouldn't judge me. I can be whatever I want to be, and I can do whatever I want to do. Of course, that's not what it's saying. I, th- I hope we covered that well back then. Uh, but I think you would agree with me that, it is somewhat of a uh, of an indicator, and we should all be evaluating: Am I being too milk toast in the living out of my Christian life, in my evangelism efforts, in whatever I'm doing for Christ? If I'm not getting any pushback, it may be an indicator that I need to step it up a little bit. Uh, it may be. We, we don't need to go looking for trouble. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's- Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, yeah, not just because yeah. you're being a jerk <laughs> right. you know, or something like that. Uh, but there is, a, you know, traditionally we talk about lifestyle evangelism, where I'm merely going to evangelize, evangelize others by living the good life. And to a degree, if we say one thing and live another, certainly it's going to hurt that gospel certainly. message. But I think Scripture makes it clear that the central part of evangelism is the preaching that the kingdom of God is at hand, that redemption is available, that living under That's where the beautiful his rule is there. That's exactly right. So so if your life is all that you have and there's not much pushback to that, then perhaps there's not enough to your gospel presentation. Right. And we need to, that, that's an internal, uh, often an internal discussion within a person's psyche or even within a family. Are <laughs> we doing enough? That's exactly yep. right. Good, good. 
Well, Jesus, Jesus is painting a very vivid picture of persecution and suffering for his faithful ambassadors. And, and let's face it, he doesn't sugarcoat it. He also, in verses 26 through 33, points the, the listener to a focus on God, or, and this is the disciples, of course. He points them to a focus on God and on the truth that can be found only in him. And he promises very real trials, but he also promises that what they're doing has an eternal purpose and, and that the God who loves them is still in control. It's a real good reminder to each of us about the truth of God's provision for his people. And so it, it also seems to me, John, that it's important that we keep reminding each other of these truths that Jesus has reminded us of. I'm amazed at how many times you see in Scripture phrases like, forget not his many benefits. We see this in Psalm 103. Or you see a passage like in Joshua where they're to erect a memorial or something like <laughs> right. that. The fact is, God is constantly active in our lives. The psalmist says there's nowhere that we can go that we can escape him. And yet, in the midst of trials, hardships in our life, we seem to forget. Mm -hmm. It seems as though he is not present. So consequently, Scripture reminds us to preach these truths with regularity to our own lives. Uh, Not because he's not there, but because... In the midst of hardships, we tend to forget, and so this is and th- this is why we come to worship on a regular right. basis. It's why we read God's word regularly. Is not because we're all of a sudden surprised that God is there. It's that we need to be reminded of these gospel truths that God and, is active in our lives. And this is something that we keep hitting on. And I don't know. I don't care whether it's Matthew, it was Ephesians, it was the pastoral epistles, but the importance of the one another concept that we need to keep building into one another and encouraging, and even on the battlefield. I mean, and, I mean, and I read the same passages and same stories I have for 40 years, mm-hmm. and then at times they hit me differently. I say, man, I'm reminded again just how good you are to me, as if I didn't know God was good before, but <laughs> there'll be something that strikes me. And so it's a, it's a way to lead me into praise for God. It's a reminder of his grace in my life, of just mm-hmm. how good he is. Well, and even as we do that, certainly we're strengthened, but uh, I can guarantee other people are strengthened, even just sitting here with you. It's an encouragement to me, being reminded of these things. You have ideas and thoughts that come to your mind that don't come to my mind. Some of that I'm glad for, John. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, goodness. Well, listen, the illustrations Jesus uses are instructive about God's care for his family members. And who cares about sparrows, John? God does. Who cares how many hairs are on my head? Well, it's becoming more important as days go on, but God does all the time. The scripture here indicates he extravagantly cares about his children. And and Jesus closes out that section of scripture by reminding the disciples and us, and I'm quoting here from scripture, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And so, as in so much of our lives, a proper perspective is the key. And I think it's what we were just talking about, yeah. dealing with God being good. Scripture constantly reminds us that God is faithful, faithful to the covenant, faithful to his words. And so here, in just this passage, I think there's a tremendous comfort from knowing that our God will faithfully remember us before the Father. Mm -hmm. Even now, he makes intercession for us, so to speak, before the Father. And having already given his life for us, is there really any doubt that in the end, when we're standing there before the judgment seat of Christ, that he will not remember us and acknowledge us or confess us at that time? I think the answer is a resounding no. Yeah. And so. 
It reminds me, John, of yesterday morning. I woke up just kind of under the world's cares and just really not, not feeling it. You ever woke up like that? And I think we all have. And I have my normal course of, uh, of process I go when I'm getting ready for work. But yesterday I pulled off of that and I turned on some good tunes that were scripture laden. And I said, just Lord, speak to me. And you know what? Within that 20, 25 minutes, I stood and got myself ready. It really, those words from those songs just kept reverberating through my mind. And it's just a reminder, God's faithfulness. And just what God, Christ is saying here, he's pointing to the future and saying, hey, God's got this. You just be faithful, Bart. So it's often what we're doing is changing our perspective right, from self to him. Well, and the importance of meditation on Scripture, memorization of Scripture, and mm -hmm. being with other people who are preaching that into our lives. So, John, next time we're going to be studying in chapter 11. And in this part of the narrative, Jesus is teaching and preaching in the disciples' cities. He meets some of John's disciples. Can you give us some homework? We're going to be preparing for next week's study. Uh, you mentioned John, so I'd, I'd start there. Chapter 11 mm -hmm. opens up with a story about John the Baptist. So you might consider going back to the first couple or three chapters and reading some of the, the sections about him there. I say that because his situation in chapter 11 is drastically different than it was in chapters 2 and 3. Isn't it though? And consequently, it, with his changing in circumstances, so has his confidence in who Christ is. From behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, uh, well, well, is he really the expected <laughs> one or whatever? Yeah. And so think about how uh, you believe Jesus should respond in these situations and compare that to actually what he does. Um, does this assure you? Um, come Sunday, come Sunday, and I know that Matt will bless you from God's Word and actually how Jesus uh, deals with John and how Jesus deals with you and me. Uh, we're looking forward to that. John, thanks. Appreciate you being here today. And we have been talking today with John Tarwater, mining the rich, fertile fields of his mind. And we've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 10. You can access John's sermon and many other messages from our extensive audio catalog, as well as recent podcast episodes, by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. And please join us next time as we continue in our study of the book of Matthew. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.